This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. So the scripture reading again is from Nehemiah chapter 1, starting with verse 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you night and day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thanks, Bruce. Hey, before we begin this morning, uh, I just want to acknowledge something uh, very special. Uh, Our own Eagle River Wolves varsity football team won their first game, I don't know, three or four years? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you Chugiak Mustangs, you're used to winning, okay? And, and hopefully uh, for our Eagle River team, uh, it'll become habit forming. Uh, on another note, amen, that's right. From my lips to God's ears. Okay. Who says God doesn't answer prayer? All right. All right. Hey, and on another note, uh, I really enjoy uh, conversation with you before and after church and um, during the week. And sometimes people will come and they'll say, Pastor Todd, I want to tell you about last week's sermon or, or something you said or, and, and share with me. Or Pastor Todd, you know, could you give me a little more insight to this or that? And so this week, someone came to me and they were sharing with me uh, some thoughts about uh, some recent sermons I've been giving. And, and then they said, but there's just one more thing. I said, okay, what's that? He said, you know, I sit in the center section, and uh, you look to the right, and you look to the left, 
but you don't look in the center enough, okay? And, and, and I said, thank you for sharing that because about a year and a half ago, someone said to me, you look to the left, you look to the center, but you don't look to the right enough. And, and so I had been consciously looking to my right and looking to my left, not realizing that I'd neglected you beautiful, wonderful people in the center, okay? So, yeah. Uh, uh, okay, here, here, here we go. So I'm going to do a better job, you center folks, uh, to look at you. I promise I like you. I really do. I didn't mean to neglect you, the center section. Which, by the way, uh, I recognize, I, I know where people are by where they sit. And uh, when you sit somewhere other than when you normally sit, it really messes me up, okay? It really, really, truly does. So, all right. But it's okay to change. That's right. It's okay to change. I'll adapt. I promise. All right. Thanks, Heather. Well, today I want to begin with kind of the confessions of a pastor. Um, This last May uh, was 32 years in vocational ministry. Okay? Uh, That's with uh, church and parachurch. That includes... um, junior high ministry, uh, jail and prison ministry, you know, nonprofit work, church work of various kinds, 32 years. And as I think about those 32 years and I evaluate and reflect on those years, you know, God has been very, very good. And uh, I'm so grateful for the privilege and the honor of being a pastor, of being able to walk alongside of you, each of you, alongside of a congregation as together we pursue Christ's priorities in the world, Christ and his priorities in the world, uh, there's no greater privilege. And uh, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. We're coming up on three years here. And uh, God, it, it just seems like it was, in fact, it was a week, uh, no, three years ago this weekend that we sat in the very back here by where Heather is. Uh, the Brower family, who since has moved out to Fairbanks, were right in front of us. And we were here doing our incognito visit. In other words, the church was looking for a pastor, but you all didn't know that we were here looking at you too. And uh, that was three years ago this weekend. It's hard to imagine uh, that that much time has gone by. But, you know, as I reflect over the years of serving as a pastor, if there's one thing um, I, looking back, wished I'd have done more of, or one thing I really want to grow in, even now, to this day, uh, it, it isn't giving sermons, although you may say you need to do that, and I, I get that. That's okay. I, I want to grow. I want to be a better communicator of, of God's Word. Um, it, it's not giving better pastoral care, although that's important. I always want to be better at that. Um, it's not being a better church administrator. Um, that's important and, and can always improve there. All those things are, are parts of uh, responsibilities as a shepherd of a, of a congregation. But if there's one thing um, that uh, I wished I'd have done more of and want to do more of moving forward, um, it's prayer. It's prayer. You know, prayer is one of the most frequently talked about things and least practiced things in a church. I'm not quite sure why that is. 
I'm just not quite sure. Um, all of us, regardless of uh, our spiritual disciplines or our practices, um, I think all of us, uh, if we are honest with each other, uh, we would say that, you know, could probably spend a little bit more time in prayer, could probably develop uh, an attitude of prayer, um, uh, an ongoing conversation with God, uh, could probably really seek the heart of God and have awareness of, of the move of His Holy Spirit, discernment and sensity, sens- uh, sensitivity to the Spirit through uh, developing uh, an even deeper uh, conversation and listening relationship with the Lord in prayer. I truly mean that. You know, over the years, let me share with you things I've seen. Um, I've seen people healed through prayer. Do you know that? I've seen people healed physically through prayer. I've seen people healed emotionally through prayer. I've seen people uh, healed relationally through prayer. I have seen people's lives transformed, put on a new trajectory um, living into all that God intends for them to be, discovering uh, His purpose for their life, and, and really living into the fullness of that. I've seen that initiated through prayer. I've seen prayer transform congregations. In fact, I will say this. I believe that every significant move of God, whether it be in a person's life, or the life of a congregation, right? The body of Christ. I believe that every single one of them has its foundation, has its genesis in prayer. Whether you were praying for it yourself or somebody was praying for you. I believe prayer is what moves, if you will, uh, the ball down the field Uh, as members of God's team. And so today I want to talk a little bit about prayer. I want to share with you uh, from the scripture, um, but also tie that back in um, to the church and to opportunities for all of us uh, to grow together. Now, there's a quote uh, from Thomas Merton. I want to share it if we can put it up right now. It says, What is the use of praying if at the very moment of prayer... We have so little confidence in God that we are busy planning our own kind of answer to prayer. Wow. Middle section. Wow. And you say, Pastor Todd, don't look at us when you say something like that. (laughs) Right? Wow. And you know what it reminds me of? Uh, When we're in conversation with somebody and they're sharing with us their thoughts or responding to an inquiry on our part? How often do you find yourself already formulating the answer to the question you've asked them and in your mind, if not verbally, already speaking over them? Anybody ever do that? We do that, don't we? Uh, If you're from an Italian family, you're really adept at that. Okay? Ah! Ah! That's right, my Italian wife. Okay. I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. What's the matter with you, she says. So, I love the Italians. Anyway. Okay. So, we do that to God, don't we? 
And I think that's what Thomas Merton is, is speaking about here. Now, what's the use of praying if at the very moment of prayer we have so little confidence in God that we're already busy planning our own kind of answer to that prayer? Now, this is, this is honest and this is hard, but I have to say it. Again, I think often um, we're, we're guilty of formulating our own plans and then asking God to bless our ignorance, aren't we? Aren't we? Uh, and I remember... Uh, a time in my own life when that was more often than not. Uh, when I was uh, a young pastor and then young and leading a nonprofit ministry, um, I really felt the pressure um, to succeed and the pressure to perform. And the organizations and the churches that I was a part of, uh, they had standards of performance, there were expectations that were set. And uh, those became the thing. Uh, that drove me. And those became the things that really, um, man, I stayed up late at night. I thought about them. I worried about them. And I was consumed with uh, meeting those expectations or performing well as to accomplish those goals. And often, much of the time, I would spend problem solving and thinking through how in the world can we move this church from here to here? Or how can we move this organization from there to over there? Can any of you relate to that? And in between, I'd, I'd sprinkle like a like good seasoning, like a good Christian should, a little bit of prayer in with that. What do you think, God, about my brilliance? <laughs> what do you think about this plan or, or that plan? Uh, and, and remember just being frustrated um, because things weren't really moving the way I thought they should, in the way they should, the time they should, right? Um, and then God brought a person into my life. Uh, this man, his name is Don. Lori and I know him affectionately as Papa Don. You've heard me speak about him in other contexts before. I was working with Prison Fellowship Ministry in Sacramento and had just had a, a fundraising dessert. Chuck Colson, who was the founder and the, the leader of that uh, ministry, had spoken. And after the dessert, I collected all the names and addresses, phone numbers of the people who were in attendance. And then my job as the executive director there in Northern California was to follow up with all these people and see how I could get them connected and involved in, in the ministry, either as a volunteer or either through um, becoming donors, supporting the ministry financially. And as I did that, I came across one man who had been a very prominent business leader in the community. He had served on the President's uh, Council of, of National Business Leaders and had done work in the United States with the Senate. Uh, this is a person uh, who had decades of just uh, succeeding in business. And so I remember going to his office, made the appointment, sat down, and uh, made the ask, right? We call it in nonprofit, make the ask. What is it that you want this person to do? What are you asking them for? And, and so I was asking him to be a financial contributor. And i never forget, he looked across his desk. He kind of leaned back at me. He looked at me, glared at me. And he said, son, well, I was 33 at the time, silver and gold I do not have. But what I have I give you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, this is what I'm willing to do. 
I'm willing to meet with you every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. for prayer. If you're willing, I'm willing. That's what I have to give you. And so I did, hoping that if I met for a month or two with him, <laughs> he'd, he'd open his pocketbook, okay? And uh, what developed uh, was, um, gosh, an over 20-year friendship uh, with a man who became my prayer mentor, whom God used to really teach me the value of prayer now, I, I grew up in a, in a Catholic background, okay? And so a lot of the prayers that I prayed were prayers that I read from the Missalette, or they were prayers I had memorized through uh, catechism. Uh, they were prayers uh, that I would say silently. And so, to be honest with you, um, <laughs> I remember when, when I began to, to, to attend Protestant churches and people would pray out loud, or pray in groups together, I mean, it would strike fear in my heart. It really would. Because it was so awkward, it was so foreign, it was so unusual. But when I began to meet with Don, I began to um, see prayer modeled for me. And you know how we, we learn to pray beyond just when we pray by ourselves, when we learn to pray with people or in groups or different expressions of prayer? We learn by being... Um, with people who pray and by praying. That's just, right? Uh, and, and for me, the thing that I learned right away from Don, it was as if, even though I was there with him and I was a participant, it was as if he and God were the only ones in the room. Like he wasn't thinking about what I was thinking about what he was praying. You ever do that when you pray? You think, okay, I got to think about what I'm praying because what somebody might think about what I'm praying. Right? Everybody, am I the only one? Okay, all right. I mean, it's hard to sit up here and, and be vulnerable like this. And the congregation, I'm saying, you all ought to be the pastors. Right? So, but Don wasn't like that. And I'm telling you, when, when this man would pray, it was, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding you. It was like the gates of heaven rattled. And he would cry out to the Lord in a way, in an intimacy that I only longed to have. It was like God was his best friend, and they knew each other just so intimately. And there was a depth of relationship and a love, and there was a passion. When this man prayed, I mean, I mean, it was like better than Geritol, okay? I mean, he, he didn't need iron in his blood. I'm telling you that prayer, when he prayed, it was like he got an infusion of life. And he was like a great patriarch that you'd read about in the Scripture. I kid you not. I mean, it got to the place where when I walked into his office, I took my shoes off because it was holy ground. Okay, no exaggeration. That's what it was like. Uh, and, and I learned from him. And again, I have to, I have to confess to you, that uh, we reached a time in the ministry where it was really, really hard. And I'd say, Don, I'm working my, my plan. I have a plan. I'm working my plan. But I'm, we're not meeting our standards of performance. And we're short on funding. And we don't have the volunteers we need to, to go into the prisons and to help serve the men and women who are being released from the jails locally. And I don't know what to do. I'm getting lots of pressure from the home office. Right? 
what am I going to do? And he'd say, pray. And I go, oh, yeah, okay, okay, now what am I going to do? Center section. He'd say, pray. Okay? And uh, I humored him and I'd pray. But I'm telling you something. God moved through prayer in ways that I never could have imagined. God moved in prayer not according to my plan, not according to my agenda. God moved through prayer to accomplish His plan, His will, and His purpose. And I got to be a a participant in that. And that was such a change. Because really, before I was asking God to be a participant in my plan, in my will, in my agenda. And so all of a sudden there was this juxtaposition where, where God was really becoming God. And, and I, I was satisfied just being taught. Okay? And so today, uh, in our passage with Nehemiah, we see a person that reminds me of, of my friend Don who, who, who went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. I, how I miss him. How I miss him. He'd call even when we moved to Alaska and there'd be a, a message on, on my, my cell phone. It'd be Don praying for me. You know, last conversation we had was uh, in August. He died two years ago uh, in September. Um, but he lives with me and I still hear him. And what he taught me still guides me. And I, I think of Nehemiah like a man like Don. You see, Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He wasn't a, a scribe. He wasn't a prophet. He was a person like you and me. Uh, he was a person that, that lived in a very secular world. He was a, a Jewish exile. You might recall Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the city took the, the Jews in that southern kingdom of Judah into, into exile. The Babylonian Empire, of course, that's where we, we read about Daniel, right? He served in the, the king's court, one of those exiles. In fact, it's interesting, uh, some of Daniel's prophecies uh, where, where Daniel predicts a return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of, of, of the city, uh, the reinstatement of worship and all those things. It's fulfilled here in, in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay. And, and so like Daniel, um, like Esther, uh, like Joseph, uh, these were people who were fiercely, fiercely um, committed to God and connected to the Lord, and yet they, they worked in a very secular setting. Okay? Uh, yet, in the midst of that, God took these people uh, that didn't have extraordinary pedigree, if you will, the sense of what we think about, and God used them to accomplish um, like impossible things. And if you look at all these people, including Nehemiah, what you're going to find is something in common. These are people who had an ongoing relationship with God. They had some form of prayer life. When things got hard or they came to, to the fork in the road, the defining moments in their life when they had to make important decisions, 
What did they do? Did they move out and act first? Or did they stop and did they pray? Did they seek God's direction and plan and, and purpose? Did they submit themselves to the Lord's plans? Or were they asking um, the Lord to submit himself to their plans? What did they do? Well, we know what they did. And this is really good stuff because it really is an encouragement for you and me, isn't it? That a person like you or me who is given over to the Lord, who is seeking the Lord, talking with Him, walking with Him on a regular basis, that that it's people like you and me that God wants to use to do um, just incredible things, to have incredible impact. Uh, None of us in God's plan and purpose and providence are designed to be spectators, okay? God intends that we be in the midst of the game. And so Nehemiah, he's serving um, in the, the king's court. The Persians took over the Babylonian Empire, uh, and King Cyrus, uh, the Persian king, in the very first verses of Ezra, by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah originally were, were, were part of a continuous book. It was Ezra 1 and Ezra 2, Right? In fact, scholars believe that Nehemiah was actually possibly uh, likely written by Ezra from Nehemiah's actual journals and, and things that he wrote in his entries, okay? So they, they go together as you read them. And in the very beginning of Ezra, uh, King Cyrus issues a decree that the Jews are going to go back uh, to Jerusalem and, and they're going to rebuild. And that, that begins. And there's actually three... Uh, groups of exiled Jews that return, okay, uh, over the course of about 90 to 100 years. It begins with Zerubbabel, and, and he rebuilds the altar and reestablishes a sacrificial system and begins to rebuild the temple. Uh, and then Ezra takes another group, and about 13 or 14 years later now, we're going to see Nehemiah doing it. Uh, and all told, there's, I think, around, this is approximate, don't quote me, okay, center section, um, about 60,000 over that course of that 90 years that, that, that end up going back. And uh, it's during this time that uh, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, uh, and by the way, guess who his stepmother is? Esther. Isn't that interesting? How she's kind of strategically placed in the court because he's going to be in the court and all the influence that God can use to, uh, to accomplish his plan and purpose, he's setting up through these people in the court of the king of Persia. So, Nehemiah is a cupbearer, which means he's like the sommelier to the king. All the fine wines, he selects them, he serves them, he's supposed to be the one that, that gives, them, uh, gives the king a good time, especially when he's entertaining guests. And in fact... The Samanye is supposed to really set the tone of the party. If it's, or excuse me, the cupbearer. If the, if the party's going well, it's because the cupbearer has selected the right wines. He tastes the food. He drinks the drink to make sure it's good for the king. Right? Um, but he's the one that's responsible. And in the custom of that day, if you were a cupbearer, you were never supposed to be down. You weren't supposed to have kind of a downcast presence. You were supposed to be up, right? 
because you set the tone for the king's social events. Well, here's the story in our first 11 verses of the book of Nehemiah. And I, I encourage you to, to go ahead and read the whole book. But this is what's going to happen. Nehemiah has a brother who's been to Jerusalem, and the brother comes back. And he says, hey, how are things going? You know, in the rebuilding and, and all the, the gathering of the people back, back in, in Jerusalem. And he hears from his brother that things aren't going well. In fact, the city has no walls. It's still unprotected. Going back to the time of uh, the Babylonian incursion under Nebuchadnezzar, when everything was destroyed. And you have to understand, in this time, a city without walls was significant because walls meant prosperity. Walls meant protection. Uh, walls uh, encouraged peace. Okay? But more important than that, to the Jewish people and to Nehemiah, you know what he saw as? Walls represented God's plan in restoring his people as was promised by the prophets. And walls represented the glory of God. And how could God be glorified? And how could God's plan of, of bringing his people back to the place he intended for them to live and to dwell, the place where he told them that he would be present with them, how could that happen with a city without walls? More than the peace or the prosperity, the protection was what did it say about his God? And he wanted to glorify God. And more than anything, he wanted to see God glorified. So this ordinary person, if you will, that had a position of influence in the king's court is going to use that influence to make a difference. And the same is true with you and me, that God places us wherever we are in life because he wants us to be people of influence. He wants us to make a difference in his plan, in his purpose, in his design. Do you see that? We all have that potential. We all have that capability. And I might dare say we all have that call on our lives to be available, to discern how God might use our presence and our influence wherever he's placed us in the world as he accomplishes his plan. And so Nehemiah, the first thing he does is he races out with his own very own plan, doesn't he? No, what does he do? Well, let's look here. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. I sat down and I wept. Do you and I weep for the things that break God's heart? Do we weep when we look at our world or we look at people that God is trying to reach? Do we weep when we have a sense of God's plan and somehow it's not unfolding in, in, in the way we know that, that, that God would want or we'd anticipate? How does that impact our heart? Do we weep? Do we weep? Well, that's what Nehemiah did. He wept. And his heart reflected the heart of God. It says, For some days I mourned, I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He sat down, and that was a position of humility. That was a position of brokenness. That was a position of, 
of one who was troubled and wanted to seek God. And that was the custom in those days. They, they would sit down or they would go low in relationship to God and they would weep and they would seek God's direction. They would seek to hear about, or from God about whatever it was that had broke their heart. And then verses 5 through 11 record a prayer. And it's a, a prayer that includes things that we're familiar with as we've been taught to pray. Um, there's adoration. It begins with adoration. There's confession. Uh, he confesses his own sin and the, the sin of the people who have not followed the, the covenant God's instruction. They've not lived into the covenant that God made with them. There's thanksgiving that God is faithful to his covenant, even when people are unfaithful. Then there's a, a supplication. There's interceding. There's, there's asking God. In this case, he's, he's really wanting, asking, seeking God. My heart is broken over the things that break your heart. What do I do about them? And then there's a commitment. And in this prayer, there's a commitment. Okay, God, by the time he ends the prayer, he already has a sense of what it is that God's asking him to do, what he's supposed to do, how he's supposed to respond. And his response is, he, he's going to go to the king and he is going to ask the king permission to go and take a third wave of exiles with him. They're going to help rebuild the wall of the city. And what's going to happen is he is going to uh, be a great leader. He's going to have two stints as governor. There's going to be religious reform, social reform. The walls are going to get rebuilt. Um, the people uh, are, are going to um, in partnership with Ezariah, the, the people are going to recommit themselves to the covenant that God made with them. They're going to repent and weep nationally as a group at the reading of God's word, and they want to be right with God, and they want to live with God. All this is going to happen, but it all starts with prayer. It all starts with God giving him. You see, Nehemiah focused on God's love, God's faithfulness, God's guidance, and he had a commitment to God's glory. And because of those things, God was able to use him. Now we see this prayer beginning in chapter uh, 1, verse 5 through 11. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, I want to call your attention to this. He is now with the king, and the king notices that he's downtrodden. Why is he downtrodden? Because he's still upset and his heart's broken over the things that breaks heart, God's heart about what's happening in Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand that he wasn't supposed to do that. As a cupbearer, he could lose his job if he was downtrodden. He was, always had to be the guy that was up. The guy that facilitated the party. And so he was taking a risk here. Again, like Esther, like Joseph, right? Like Daniel, like others that we read about. They were willing to step out and risk their own security and comfort for the sake of God and God's heart and God's plan. And so the king notices there's something wrong. He says, what's wrong? And he begins to share. He's taking a risk here. But look at this. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And then this is what Nehemiah says. I was very much afraid. 
But what's he do? In the midst of the conversation with the king, verse 3, but I said to the king, uh, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now look at verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? And let's look at what Nehemiah does. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Do you see what he did here? This is the first of eight different times throughout the book of Nehemiah where in the midst of a situation, in the midst of a conversation, when there's a challenge, when, when, when there's a need for direction or, or hope or strength or guidance, he just stops and spontaneously, even while he's talking, he's praying to the Lord. You see that? Eight different times in the book. We see that. And what's that tell us? That tells us that he has an established relationship. He's having an ongoing conversation. That he knows that God is present. He knows that, that God is faithful to his promises. And he knows that God has the power to deliver. And whatever it is that's of concern. And he exercises that. And so... We can see here that the plan was successful because it began with prayer. And prayer was the mortar, right? For the bricks of the work, of the reform, of all that was going to happen. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. As we think about our own church, when we think about Nehemiah, we know that prayer precedes action and that Nehemiah prospered because he prayed. Um, a week from now, you can pull this out. We are going to begin as a church a week of fasting and prayer. We're going to be Nehemiahs together. Why? Because God is building something here. God's building our future. In two weeks, I'm going to begin a sermon series on our, our, uh, our new mission focus as a church and our, our strategic ministry plan that the last two years we've all been working together to seek the Lord's guidance and direction for, okay? But before we begin to to share that, before that sermon series starts, we want to be Nehemiahs. We want to ask God, God, how do we live into this that you've given us? What, What do we do with this? How can we as a congregation be a part of of your plan, not only for Eagle River, for our state of Alaska, but what you're doing globally in the world, Lord? We we, we desperately need you. And maybe part of that involves the self-introspection. Maybe individually or as a congregation, we need to confess that we've fallen short, that we haven't been faithful, but that we want to live into all that God has for us and and to live into the promises He has. And we want to be the people that He's called us to be. But you know what? We have no hope of ever doing that unless we are a people of prayer. Unless we're committed to prayer. I believe that with all my heart. If there's nothing else this church is known for, nothing else may it be a church that's known as a people who gather in prayer. A people who have a heart for the Lord. A people who seek the Lord of people who prayerfully not only talk with the Lord, but walk with the Lord. And so I want to invite you as you leave today to take one of these.
This is a prayer guide for the week. You can see it starts September 4th and goes through all the way Sunday, September 11th as we prepare ourselves for all that God has for us. Uh, Here's a short invitation. There can be prayer events all during the week here at the church as we prepare for Sunday, September 11th, the 11th of September. And here's an actual prayer guide that you can take and you can participate as we go. Okay? As the worship team comes forward, and as we think about the challenge that Nehemiah gives us through his life of active listening, talking, and walking with God. May you and I be Nehemiahs. May we seek the Lord in what he's building here at Community Covenant Church. Amen.